Well, depending on the context, depending on the intent, depending on the timing, and depending on the purpose, sometimes the smallest act can be a lot more than a small act. It can go from being a small act to a, like, prophetic sign. Let me see if I can illustrate. If, uh, if this fall you decide, you know what, I've never seen Boston in the fall, and we take a vacation to Boston, I suppose if you took a Lipton tea bag and you absentmindedly tossed it into Boston Harbor— I don't think you'd be in much trouble. I mean, maybe there'd be a fine there for littering or something. But if you throw some tea into Boston Harbor, it's no big deal. But if it's 1773 and you're part of the Sons of Liberty, you know exactly what you're doing. When you're throwing that tea into Boston Harbor to protest the Stamp Act or uh, whichever one it was, And you're saying no taxation without representation. It's tyranny. It's more than dropping some tea into Boston Harbor. It is, in fact, a line in the sand, and you are now guilty of treason, and your life is on the line. By that calculated move, that was not just some little act. That was a prophetic sign. You say, but it's just throwing tea in the harbor. No, 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 no. It's a prophetic sign. This goes all the way back to the the, the Old Testament prophets. Uh, If you break a piece of ceramic— We've all done it, right? You break a vase or something. We've done that all the time. That's just breaking a vase. If, however, you are Jeremiah the prophet, and you are looking for some way to get the elders of Israel, get their attention, and you're told by God, take them together, go up on this mountain, and smash the earthen vessel, and say, this is what's coming. Until, unless you repent, God is going to smash this uh, 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 kingdom you've set up, and judgment is coming. Well, now it's more than just dropping a vase. It's a prophetic act. M- many of you, even this year, even recently, have done a real estate transaction, a real estate transaction. No big deal. People buy land. They sell land. It happens all the time. But if you're Jeremiah the prophet and you want to give a word of hope, God has told you not just go buy a piece of property right before the Babylonians come and take God's people into exile. Jeremiah says, I'm going to buy a plot of dirt. I'm going to buy some land. Because it's not just about the land. It's about showing everybody what What you cannot see, I have a word from God, and he's going to bring God's people back to this place. He's going to bring them back. So, you know, hear ye, hear ye, let it be recorded, let this deed be recorded that that I'm buying land just when everybody else says, sell now, we're getting out of here, Babylon's going to come. It's a prophetic act. Does, Does that make sense? Ezekiel was probably the most famous Old Testament prophet for these sign acts. You know, when he wanted to get God's attention, God told him, get a haircut. Now, that's no big deal. We get a haircut, you know, do that all the time, right? No, Ezekiel, uh, take a sword and get a really bad haircut and then throw the hair in the air and start chopping at the hair with the sword. Now you've got my attention, right? It's more than, these are calculated from God to the people. The prophet gives sign acts. And if you see what Jesus does in today's text, if you understand, he's he's prophet. He's certainly more than prophet. But in today's passage, he is prophet, priest, and king. But in the line of those Old Testament prophets, what he's doing, everything is calculated. And just like throwing some tea into Boston Harbor, just like the prophetic word that came through Jeremiah or Ezekiel, what we're going to see here is it didn't just, Jesus didn't just like, 
all shucks, things are happening to me. You know, people are putting down palm branches as I enter the city. No, no, no. These are prophetic sign acts. We've come now to Matthew chapter 21. For those of you who have been part of the Matthew series, we have been on this road trip. And some of you have been tempted to ask, are we there yet? We finally made it. We're there. The road trip has been from up north. Jesus and his disciples, he's been traveling south to Jerusalem. We finally made it. We've made it to Jerusalem. And talk about getting the people's attention. It's not just arriving at Jerusalem. It's arriving at Jerusalem during the week of Passover. Uh, Christians know this as Holy Week, the, the, the Passion Week of Christ. The Jews would have called it the, the, the week of unleavened bread. It was a politically charged week of the year. Uh, uh, historians estimate there's 50,000 residents in the walls of Jerusalem, 50,000 people. During Passover week, 150,000 people. Can you imagine a small city upon which tens of thousands of people descend for a weekend? They call it Rock the Passover right here. At <laughs> you get it, right? Now, that's a very small scale. People say, wow, there's a lot of people here. Imagine with me 150,000 people coming in to this 50,000 city. With what, though? It's, it's politically charged. It's not just some concert or something. It's politically charged. Why? Every year the, the, the Romans are, are on high alert because they're always talking about Messiah. What does Passover celebrate? What does Passover signify? Passover signifies when God's people threw off the yoke of Pharaoh's oppression, and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God got the people out of bondage in Egypt and off to the promised land. It's all about throwing off the yoke of oppression. Well, it used to be Pharaoh, now it's Rome, and, and, and the people are, I mean, it's a powder keg. All it takes is one match, and that will light the fire of rebellion. They just need their Moses. They just need their Messiah, and it's on. We'll conquer Rome. We'll conquer, take down Herod and Pilate and ultimately Caesar. Hmm? You see how this is charged every year. That's, uh, you know, all the, the, the business about Barabbas and these other insurrectionists. There are all these would-be messiahs that would pop up and be ready to fight. And Jesus, absolutely knowing this, Jesus knowing exactly, he's been doing healings. I imagine he's gathered this crowd. People obviously couldn't even fit in Jerusalem, so they're camped out all around Jerusalem. And so in, in uh, uh, the, the, the triumphal entry, chapter 21, verse 1. Now when, uh, historically, we would read this on when? On Palm Sunday, right? You got this, the, the image in your head? Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Bethpage is a small town outside Jerusalem, and he sends them to an even smaller village. This is the staging area for what's about to happen. Saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and here he quotes Zechariah, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he said on them, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, Hosanna is Hebrew for save us. Save, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Some of your translations might have in turmoil, right? Stirred up is the same Greek root seismic. We get the word earthquake, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I want you, I want you to see these are three, we're going to see three deliberate prophetic sign acts. And I want you to see what each one means for them, what each one means for us. The first is this triumphal entry. This was not an accident. This was not, as I said, Jesus saying, well, goodness, this is a pleasant surprise. Look at everyone making an impromptu red carpet for me. No, no, no. No, he's in absolute control. The, the crisis that sets up this incident actually even dips back into the chapter before this. The last miracle before they get in Jerusalem, two blind men cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. And it's the first time in the scriptures, you know, what does Jesus do? Son of David, you know, save us. Over and over, what has Jesus been doing in his ministry? Have you noticed something? This is totally different. We see a whole new side of Jesus at the triumphal entry. Over and over, Jesus would heal somebody. Over and over, Jesus would do some miracle, and then he would immediately do what? Shh. Don't tell anybody. You're the son of David. You're the Messiah. Just, 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 just. Not yet. Right? This is the first time, and the disciples realize what's happening. This is the first time they cry out, son of David. And Jesus is like, yes. He's owning it. And so what do you want? We want to see. Okay. He heals him. Come on. And now this triumphal entry, they're laying down palm branches, and he's not like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Let's keep it a secret. He's like, yep, here it is. The whole thing is prearranged. The, the apostles, I think, at this point would have gasped because they, it's like they wanted it, but now that it's here, it's a little scary. There's no going back. From the very beginning, they wanted Jesus openly to declare himself a king. They wanted him. They were begging him to do this. They knew about his power. They knew what he could do. If he would just come out and publicly proclaim it, it would force the issue. And now he does. They're like, oh boy, because there's no going back now. Once they say, you're the son of David, and he's like, yep, that's right. The hair on the back of their necks probably stood up. They were thrilled, but they were also terrified because this is do or die. Now, there's no going back. Either after the triumphal entry, either Jesus has to triumph or be demolished. He has to conquer or be crushed, smashed, destroyed. From their perspective, this is the final sprint to the top. This is everything. Time is running out. They're on their way to Jerusalem to openly declare himself king, and now it's going to happen. The disciples knew this is do or die. You might say, from Jesus' perspective in the disciples' mind, crown me or kill me. And they knew it would end one of those two ways. So it's all so kingly. He's in complete control. Isn't that great? He even prearranges the transportation on how he's going to come in. Isn't that, isn't, that a, isn't that great? That he says, go to a village just before Jerusalem. There must have been one more little pit stop. It must have been a town so small it didn't even have a, uh, didn't even have a stoplight. He says, go in there. You're going to find a donkey. Uh, uh, and then a colt that's never been ridden. And that makes sense, right? Bring the, that poor colt's never been ridden. It's got a lot of crowds. Bring the colt's mama too. That'll keep them calm. He says, then, then you just go and untie. And they're going, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, just the first one you come to. You'll know him. You'll see him. Untie, and there's the disciples, and they feel weird. He goes, I'll give you a little code word. This is like spy movie stuff. He's like, when they come ask you, hey, what are you doing? Just be like, the master has need of it. And they'll be like, okay, <laughs> Like, who does this, right? Now, Jesus has prearranged the whole thing. And so they go, they untie, they feel weird. Somebody comes up, questions, they give the secret code word, and off they go with the uh, 
with the, the animals that fulfill, Matthew gives us an aside, fulfills Zechariah 9. Look back at that quote. This took place to fulfill. Have you noticed every time when we begin the sermon with that bumper, the name of the Matthew series is that it might be fulfilled. Here's one more example where Matthew says, fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet, spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And I imagine the disciples didn't hear much after, the, after that. Once they heard your king is coming, they didn't hear about gentle. They didn't hear about humble. All they see is everybody throwing down this impromptu red carpet. You see that in verses 8 and 9. They're throwing their cloaks on the road. They're cutting palm branches. They're shouting, you know, oh, save us, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. <clears throat> so the crowd, this is what they think of Jesus. They're, they're certain he is the one. And if Jesus wanted everyone's attention, he got it. Word travels fast. You can imagine, you know, what, what's going on here? This is that prophetic sign act. And anyone who doesn't know, verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, whole city stirred up. So he's got everybody's attention now. And the crowd said, who is this? Oh, sorry. They, they asked, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So scene one, everybody got it? The sign act. And apparently it worked. He's got everybody's attention. He's not the first king of Israel, by the way, to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. If you go back to 2 Samuel 16, uh, David, and, and after Absalom's rebellion, he comes riding back into Jerusalem, sure enough, uh, on a donkey. And so the whole thing is so kingly, except, except for the donkey. <laughs> I mean, I'll just, I'll say what, what's probably obvious, but you know, that prophecy in Zechariah, it doesn't just say, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. It also says what? Humble and mounted on a donkey. Did you notice that? See, if your king is coming, what you want that to say is, mounted on a war horse, right? On a noble steed. Nope, he's on the donkey. Put it this way. To ride on a donkey, in spite of all this kingly stuff, is to take the position of a servant. Any general who rides into battle on a donkey is going to be slaughtered. You'd be better off on foot. And already, the sign act of the prophet is telling us something. Here you have the king who should be on a noble steed, instead riding where maybe the servant would ride. Isn't that something? Sin, think with me, sin. When we sin against God, it is rebellion against the kingship of God. He's the king, but we want to be king. So sin is when we, who should be servants of the king, we should be servants of God, we put ourselves in the place of the king. So the salvation of Jesus, here you have the king putting himself in the place of the servant. Whereas sin is humanity putting itself where only God should be, Salvation is God coming and putting himself where we should be, receiving the death penalty, dying for our sins. Can you see it? When he's riding on a donkey instead of a steed, he's saying to everybody, to quote Tim Keller, he says, I'm the king, but not a king like you think. Because what if I did free you from the Romans? Do you realize if I freed you from the Romans, if that was the only liberation I gave you, you'd turn around and be enslaved to somebody else. Because if I free you from the Romans, what are you going to do about your guilt? The tables are turned. And that's the scene one. That's the prophetic act. This is what I wanted to show you. The tables are turned. For the sake of us, sinful servants who acted like kings, the king became a servant. If you're a note taker, that to me is the heart of the triumphal entry. Here you have the king. He's absolutely in control. He creates this big ruckus, this prophetic act. 
the line in the sand, this is, the die is cast, this is now do or die. And he did it for us. For the sake of sinful servants who acted like kings, the king became a servant. Scene one. Scene two. What does he do now? He has the whole city's attention. Certainly he has the religious leader's attention. And I bet he has the Roman guard's attention. So what's his first move? Again, totally calculated, totally orchestrated, and it's a famous scene. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple. You remember this? And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Woo. If you have been used to Jesus meek and mild, spicy Jesus comes as a bit of a shock, aggressive. One version says he had to fashion a cord of whips to make this happen. Goes right into the temple like he owns the place. Hmm? Let's look at this passage under a microscope. Every detail in scene two, this scene, is loaded with significance. Context. For the ancient Israelite, what is the temple? The temple is the center of Israelite worship. It is your connection to God. It represents your access to the holy. And like I said, 150,000 pilgrims are descending. You've come on a pilgrimage, and you're here to worship. Worship means simply offering sacrifice. So literally, an animal sacrifice. You a lamb or a goat and you're there to sacrifice. Also, you remember, don't forget that two drachma tax. It could be that you're here to pay your half shekel temple tax. And to make all this possible, just like modern travel today, uh, by the way, I don't think Jesus was necessarily upset with the fact that people had to change into local currency. Uh, You had to exchange your currency for local currency. The temple only had certain currency that they could receive. So Jesus wasn't opposed to that. I mean, even that's true today. When you uh, land in a a new uh, country, you you have to exchange your currency for their currency, right? And then there's an exchange rate. They profit off that, but it's just kind of what you have to do. In addition, you had to offer sacrifice. Well, think about it. How are, if you've come, say, 100 miles on this journey, even if you've come less than that, how are you going to get your sacrifice to the temple safely? You're not just going to bring lammy on this journey, are you? No, for lots of reasons. One, travel with livestock is going to be difficult. But on top of that, say you bring this lamb with you for the sacrifice, and one night while you're sleeping, a coyote is out there and nicks the lamb's ear. Now it's a blemished sacrifice. You got to go back, right? You can't offer, you can't offer lamby anymore, right? So there's thoughtful. What you do is you just bring some money to purchase the lamb, And that way, when you get there, they've got these unblemished lambs that are ready for sale, ready for sacrifice. It's still a sacrifice. You still have to pay. You have to purchase. And then you're able to offer that sacrifice. Again, I don't think Jesus was necessarily against that system. You'd purchase it when you get there. What's the difference? You either spend the money on the lamb you have, or you spend the money when you get there. I don't think that's the problem. Over time, the high priest had moved all this buying and selling from outside the temple walls to inside. Remember that if you can picture the temple complex, it's 35 acres of area. It's massive. It's better to say that um, Jerusalem is not a city with a temple in it. It's a city that is built around a temple. It worked on a system of access where as you get more and more into the center of the temple, it's more and more restrictive access. The most open access in that 35 acres was called the Court of Gentiles. 
It meant that beyond that, everyone could go in the court of Gentiles. But beyond that, that's as far as Gentiles could go. They couldn't go any further. The next, the Israelite men and women could go to the next level of access into the court of women. Again, it doesn't mean that just women were in there. It meant that after that, women could go no further. Israelite men and the priests could go a little further. And then you get to the holy place. Only the priests can go to the holy place. And then where the presence of God is, once a year, do you remember this? In the holy of holies. There only the high priest could go and only once a year to meet with the presence of God. So somewhere along the line, one of these high priests figured they could speed things up a little bit. And you can imagine this steady stream of worshipers and all this sacrifice. And over time, they're like, look, we could, we could make this a lot easier. We could make this a lot more efficient. Let's just put this, uh, all this buying and selling of this livestock and all of this changing of currency, let's just go ahead and put this in the court of Gentiles. It's 35 acres. It's, come on, right? Uh, uh, they're not going to notice. After all, how many Gentiles really are wanting to come here to worship anyway? The big show is what happens after you get past the court of Gentiles. And so imagine then, and, and not to mention uh, the high priest knew they could line their prophets. Their prophets would increase. I mean, you know, not for nothing, but their prophets would increase a little bit with this new system too by housing everything within the temple complex. Well, you can imagine then if you come into the worship of God and you're slammed with all these people and you get in there and, and, and instead of the presence of God, they're in the court of Gentiles, it's a religious circus. Livestock everywhere, currency exchange. One commentator had the best line. It was a bizarre mix between a county fair and the New York Stock Exchange trading floor. That's a pretty good image, isn't it? Buy, buy, sell, sell, right? County fair and the New York Stock Exchange trading floor. Now imagine with me, you're a Gentile worshiper. And the only place you're allowed to worship is now the county fair stock exchange trading floor. And if we ask the religious leaders, yeah, but what about them? They don't really have any choice. They, don't, they can't go to another place to worship. I think the religious leaders would have said, yeah, well, you know, what can you do? Business is business and uh, the temple's for the Israelite people anyway. I'm so sorry if these Gentiles don't feel welcome. Sorry. They'll figure it out. I think that's what Jesus is not okay with. And I say that because he combines two Old Testament quotes. And if you look at the context of each of these Old Testament quotes, what does he do? He throws over the tables. Can you imagine? Drives them out. Tells them, get out. The money changers and those selling. And he said, in these, the two quotes, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's Isaiah 56. But you make it a den of robbers. That's Jeremiah 7. Can I show you Isaiah 56 in the context and why that's so important? Why does he say, my house shall be a house of prayer? Because Matthew, a good Jew, he would have known this, I'm sure. Look at Isaiah 56. Look at verse 3. Look at the context. Do you know what Isaiah, do you know what that my house shall be called a house of prayer? Do you know who it was written to? It was the words of the prophet to anybody who was a Gentile, to anybody who was a foreigner. He says, hey, is this story just for the Jewish people? And Jeremiah was saying, no, God's going to bless the Jewish people so that he can be a blessing to the world. And he says, let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words, he's saying to these Gentiles, I know what you're thinking. You think God doesn't want anything to do with me. He says, no, don't think like that. You join yourself to me and you'll be welcome in my house. Then... Verse 7, these, talking about these Gentiles, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain. In other words, it was happening. There were Gentiles who actually did want to come to Jerusalem and worship. I will bring them, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted 
on my altar. This is staggering. When the people of God in Jeremiah's day heard this, they're like, wait, 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 you're going to let pagans in here? You're going to let Gentiles? Who cares about them? God says, I care. And I'm going to receive their offerings same as you because this is going to be based on a relationship, not a ritual. Because my house, and here's the showstopper, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all peoples. And when Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, no one misunderstood the context he's talking about. He's saying, I have the authority to clean this place up. So I'm turning over tables from floor to balcony. In God's house, all nations are going to have access to the Holy One. And these religious leaders instead have made it a den of robbers. You see that? You've made it a den of robbers. You say, how are they robbing? Well, for one thing, they're robbing the Gentiles the opportunity to pray and worship in the temple. And further, we may assume not only are they robbing the Gentiles, they probably are exploiting the poor. Um, did, it, did you notice in verse 12, and just, I won't belabor this, but just go, look, look, look at verse 12 for just a second in Matthew. Um, uh, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, right? Got it? So he's got the whip. He's turning over the tables, overturned the tables, the money changers, and then randomly the pigeons. <laughs> yeah, kicks over all the tables and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Well, I just told you, of all the livestock, it seems odd, uh, the, the, the sacrifice that people would bring was a lamb. Uh, I know many of you were probably reading Leviticus last night, as you do every night. And in, in Leviticus chapter 5, it's, it's pretty clear uh, that when you come to offer your sin offering, your guilt offering, you bring an unblemished lamb. You can bring a kid, a, a goat, right? Um, but but th that's the offering. But then, in the Torah, written into the very heart of God, into the law of God, in Leviticus 5, it offers something. What if, and this is real, what if economically you are disadvantaged to the place where, what if you cannot afford a lamb? Does that mean you're not allowed to go? Well, you love God. You're just poor. You want to bring something. And the Bible says you can. If you can't afford a lamb, you can't afford a goat, you're allowed to bring pigeons. They cost almost nothing, but almost nothing is still a lot when you got exactly nothing. And of all the exploitation, isn't it something? It wasn't the lamb that got the focus. It wasn't the goat tables that got the focus. It's the poor who got the worst of it. Isn't that always the case? When there's exploitation, children... The poor almost always get the worst of it. And Jesus is here saying, I think, to exploit those wealthy lamb people is wrong. But you're going to exploit my poor pigeon people? In fact, when, his, when Mary, when his mama and stepdad, when Mary and Joseph came uh, to present him at the temple, you remember they were pigeon people. Remember that? They brought the turtle doves. They brought the doves or pigeons, same thing. They, they couldn't afford a lamb. It's as if Jesus is saying, you're going to exploit my pigeon people? I'm sorry. You get, I'm not sorry. You're getting thrown out of here. His heart for the poor and the weak. And I know that you think, uh, these religious leaders, they think as long as the temple machinery keeps running, you know, as long as we're in the holy place, we're good. As long as we have the big, beautiful temple, and as long as everything keeps going, we're good. And he says, no, no, you're, you're, it's a den of robbers. 
That's from Jeremiah 7. Thus says the Lord. I'll show you Jeremiah 7. Let me just show you this quote. This is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 3. Thus, said the, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And this has become a mantra for him. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The point being, hey, as long as we've got the temple, we're good to go. He's like, no, don't be trusting in the temple. Trust in the God of the temple. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widower, or shed the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you've not known? And then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we're delivered, only to go on doing these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. It's a den of robbers. Think about it. Robbers don't do their robbing in, in the den. They do their robbing out here. Then they come back to the den because the den is their lair, their place where they feel safe. It's a perfect analogy to the hypocritical religious leaders of Jesus' day. He's saying, you're doing all these acts of wickedness. Then you come back into the temple thinking, well, we're safe in here. She's saying, No. No, no way. Out. And so for, for at least an hour, the machinery of the temple, can you imagine this massive line of 150,000 pilgrims? It was temporarily closed. And the Lord was in his temple there. Jesus closed down the operations of that whole old covenant sacrificial system for just a short time. I'm sure it resumed after that, but for a short time it was shut down as if Jesus was pointing to the new covenant that was to come. And when all those were kicked out, look who wanders in. Look at the next verse. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. How great is that? Those who claim to be religious insiders but are actually hypocrites are cast out, and those who have been long cast out are welcomed in. And he healed them. Tables turned. Scene two. Hypocritical insiders are cast out, and outsiders are welcomed in. Scene three drives it all home. And he does this in scene three. He does this sign for a small group of disciples. Let's read it. Got it? Hypocritical insiders cast out, outsiders welcomed in. And finally, one last prophetic sign. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. Okay, what? It's like we're tracking with Jesus, then suddenly he's like lashing out at trees. <laughs> People sometimes don't have, don't, they don't really know what to do with this miracle. Was Jesus hangry? No. Is he just sort of lashing out? No. And then he sort of randomly says, you know, you can have superpowers too. What's going on? When he sees this tree that's full of leaves, there's all this growth. There should be fruit. Nope. It was all show. The fig tree, remember it's a prophetic act. The fig tree, a sign, the fig tree represents what Israel's leaders had become. In Jesus' mind, the system is corrupt beyond repair. They were all outer show, but inside they were fruitless. 
Now, I could show you countless Old Testament verses where Israel was compared to a fig tree that had no figs, to a vine that had no grapes. Just after Jeremiah 7, in fact, Jeremiah 8, when, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, he says, look, Babylon is going to wipe you out. You're a fig tree without any figs. So when you hear that prophecy that the fig tree has no figs, judgment is coming, and in this case, on the temple. And sure enough, a few short years later, the temple would be destroyed by Romans in the year 70 A.D. And Jesus is saying what he's been hinting at all along in Matthew, that he himself is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple system. Think about it. Over and over so far in Matthew, over and over, it, it's really something. Jesus will heal somebody, or, or he'll say, for example, to, the, to the, the paralytic man that was lowered down into the roof, he'll say things like, your sins are forgiven. He, wait, what? He can't say that. You're, you have to go to the priest. You have to go to the, to the, to the show yourself. To the, you, 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 there has to be a sacrifice. The temple has to be involved. And it's as if Jesus is saying, No. The temple is the place, the holy place where people meet with God. I'm telling you, I am the place where people can meet with God. It's me. What about the high priest? I'm it. What about the, what about the temple? I'm it. What about the sacrifice? I'm it. I'm the center of holiness. And that's the final table that's turned. The old covenant is fulfilled in Jesus. He inaugurates a new covenant. And that's why, if you wonder, there's no more trips to Jerusalem to sacrifice the lambs. He is the lamb. There's no more high priest that we go through to get to God. He is the high priest. There's no more temple. Jesus is the holy of holies where people can meet with God. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Jesus. He's given us a sign act, and we still observe it, and the Bible says that we will continue to observe it until he comes. Now, Jesus himself gives his followers one more sign act. Let's think about him. In the triumphal entry, the servant made himself, uh, we servants who've made ourselves in place of a king, but the high king put himself in the place of a servant. In the uh, turning over the tables in the temple, what do you have? Well, those who are hypocritical insiders are cast out, but those who are outsiders are welcomed in. And in the case of the fig tree, it's saying, judgment is coming. Judgment's coming. And look, he says, you can sell that mountain. What's he, by the way, he's pointing to a mountain. He's pointing to the temple mount. He's saying, you, you think this, this fig tree thing is impressive. I'm telling you, this whole system is going to be thrown into the sea. And sure enough, what, 30, 40 years later, the temple was in fact destroyed. He's saying, he is inaugurating a brand new covenant. Now let me ask you, who is this good news for and who's this bad news for? Well, I suppose if you were puffed up in your pride, that today's message is a word of judgment. If you think that you can go out, live however you want because, hey, we're safe. As long as the religious machinery is working, we're safe. This is a word of judgment. But to the humble, this is good news. To those who would say, I can't make it on my own. I need a high and holy king. And I thank you, Lord, that you came gentle and humble riding on a donkey. And thank you that you came not just to conquer and crush, but to be crushed, that we might be saved. If you hear the sign of the fig tree and say, I don't want to trust in outward appearance. I don't want that. I need you. I need a relationship with Jesus. You see, the, the sign, there are good news to those who are humble 
They're not good news, those who are puffed up in pride. And that brings us to the table. It's really no different. The table is still a pride shatterer. But it's good news to the humble. It's good news to the broken. To anybody who would say, I cannot save myself. I rely completely on the salvation of Jesus. This is good news for you. You come, you receive it. In fact, Jesus even calls it. He refers to the cup. He calls it the cup of the new covenant. So to those who are prideful, I, I pray today God would break you of that pride. And if you're, you're lost and you're apart from him, let today be the day you humble yourself. You bow the knee and you declare Jesus is Lord of your life. And to those of you who are believers, to the humble, those that God has humbled, you've said, I cannot make it on my own. I can't save myself. I need Jesus to save. You come and you're going to receive the bread and the cup. At this time, the deacons will come forward, stand here as we prepare to receive the Lord's table. I'm going to give a simple word of explanation.